Hi, welcome to the Morning Talk Show. Today is my second conversation with Howard Bloom. Howard is an author and a scientist, a polymath, um, a, a well-known um, atheist, and uh, and an extremely successful music publicist, among other things. I wanted to talk to him about atheism because he has a unique and fascinating view uh, on atheism that is kind of inspiring and transcendent. And that's what I've been kind of... Uh, itching to discuss. And he's always a happy heretic in any field that he's in. And I think even in the, uh, even in atheism, he's, he's not right on the main stream, but he's very open to other people's experience. And um, I really enjoyed this conversation. So I hope you do too. Please like and subscribe, uh, hit the bell to be notified about more conversations. And here's my second conversation with Howard Bloom. Sorry. Uh, all kinds of boundaries. And continue here. Okay, there we go. And it's very important to me to have friends with whom I radically disagree. Um, So, and, and what I haven't been able to articulate is that when you have friends in as many patches of ideological territory as you can possibly find, including friends whose philosophy would tend to kill you, I mean, literally to be genocidal towards you, Hmm. um, you don't have the full range of human experience unless you have those friendships with people with whom you radically disagree on yeah. things. Yeah, no, and that's that's actually uh, right on the on the cusp of of my inspiration for asking you to to be on the show again, is because I really um, I, I I on paper I have that as a value that. Um, I would really like to be friends with with people uh, of many different ideological viewpoints. And and it's not just on paper. It is actually the case. But I find myself um, also kind of becoming, um, you know, uh, you get you get kind of siloed, I guess, uh, in, in your thinking sometimes. And I, I'm the type of conversationalist that brings uh, brings things around to my uh, <laughs> To my way of thinking and that kind of thing, and so I, I, I wanted to for a while to to, um, well, okay, I'll back up a tiny bit more. Um, the thing that's been growing in me is actually kind of a resurgence of uh, of my Christian faith, I guess you could say. But amazing. In, but in a in a really um, a totally different way than it's ever been, you know, and and in a way that I can read, I, I you know, I can read Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me your book and and feel you know god speaking to me through through that or or whatever you know like i've I've been having a resurgence of kind of a universal some kind of faith i don't know what it is um but uh it it makes me it makes me a little bit nervous uh (laughs) and 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 i wanted to um i've wanted to to reconnect with kind of atheists uh you know passionate uh transcendental atheists if that's a thing <laughs> that's a great term <laughs> transcendental atheists yeah uh and, and just kind of um uh connect because i thought i was on that road at one point to to atheism i just as- assumed that i was um and sorry this is to make this about me when uh you know obviously oh it's interesting um yeah, so I, I was I was on you know I was on the path and probably actually at one point a similar path that led your friend to the alt right, you know the there was the Jordan Peterson um, talks about uh, 
the Bible and all of that. And, uh, and th that was very interesting and it kind of put me on a path, but then I never, uh, you know, I, I'm, I've, I've just, uh, you know, you become disillusioned with that path as well. And obviously, obviously, well, not obviously I, I wasn't drawn to the alt-right, but I thought, well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting into the psychological significance of the biblical stories. And so I'm probably just becoming an atheist and, and I guess strangely that hasn't happened. And I've had an increase in, um, you know, experiences of, uh, upwellings of, uh, poetry and, uh, in me and, and, and faith and, and some kind of, uh, attraction to the concept of God. So I wanted to talk to someone who could speak to, I mean, my idea was the glory of atheism, you know, right. <laughs> um, well, it's, an, it's a weird way to start it. Um, I don't want right. to have a debate. I'm not, I would never debate you uh, on the issue, but I was just curious. And about I'm not your... a good debater anyway. Um, yeah, no, nor am I. Well, I, I want to read you something. Okay. So I, I can't see you for the moment because I'm looking at this uh, file. Oh, I look um, the same. Okay, so this is my, my favorite of the zillions of epigrams that I've written. This is my favorite. And it says, since there is no God, it is our job to do his work. God is not a being. He is an aspiration, a gift, a vision, a goal to seek. Ours is the responsibility of making a cruel universe turn just of turning pains to understandings and new insights into joy, of creating ways to soar the skies for generations yet to come, of fashioning wings with which our children's children shall overcome, of making worlds of fantasy materialize as reality, of mining and transforming our greatest gifts, our passions, our imaginings, our pains, our insecurities, and our lusts. This is the mark of deity, and deity is a power that resides in us. That's the whole thing. Now let me get you back mm. where I can see you. Um, yeah, okay. I so, love that. So, and you know that the, uh, Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me is a book about a search for the gods within. within. Yeah. And that's strangely enough, I found those gods in a territory I never imagined having anything to do with because I didn't have anything to do with it for the first 25 years of my life, popular culture. Because hmm. popular culture was the culture of the kids who used to chase me around the block and beat me up and humiliate me in every way they possibly could. So there was no way I had any interest in that hmm. culture. But I found the gods inside um, in the world of rock and roll, of all things. And um, there's my approach to the world is it, it, it's summed up in a term called omnology, the aspiration to omniscience. Mm. You know, if we can admire a God who knows everything, um, then it's our obligation to know everything. And especially mm. in science, where the aspiration to omniscience, the aspiration to knowing and understanding everything mm. is, is paramount. So right. I've taken over the course of all this time since I was 12 years old, all the sciences, put them together with all of the arts and everything else that I can comprehend with my meager little brain. Um, and I, I've been laying them out on a timeline so you can see the relationship between all of them. And then I've been looking at the big picture. And that's my job is to look at the big picture while my friends in science are digging themselves little gopher holes so deep that they can't <laughs> see anything but the soil around them, if right. they can see even that. 
And my job has been to be like a, a an eagle that soars over the landscape using yeah. all those little gopher holes as pixels right? in a big picture. So that's what it seems to me you're aching toward in your own way. And you're seeing the imminence, the uh, divinity, um, the exaltation in yeah. whatever it is you come to understand. That's where the Christianity comes in. Yeah. And that's a transcendent experience, to use yeah. your that word. It can be a transcendent experience. It yeah. can bring you into the exaltation you get when you feel that you're part of something much bigger than yourself. Yeah. Um, well, and, and since we can imagine a God, even if there is no God, it's our job to become that God right. to the best of our limited ability. Well, and I must certainly, I must say also that, that my, uh, you know, the, the reason that my path has taken this shape is, is that the, the language of my brain is already structured that way. You know, I've got, uh, you know, decades of, decades of using the language of God. So, I mean, nothing you've said in, in anything so far has been in any way uh, objectionable to me. I love that passage that you read. And if anything, um, I wish I could just go listen to it, write it down and, and respond to each thing. But I think what, what jumped out at me was um, the, the, the main thing was the, this concept of, of the God searched for versus the God found. Because on the one hand, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're saying that God is an aspiration. And, and I, I, I definitely agree to that because I think probably one of the most uh, hateful things that has ever been unleashed on humanity is the knowledge of God. You know, is is the actual is is someone claiming final knowledge of God, right? You, you know, is someone who who's who claims to know God and 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 know what God is saying is is a is a pretty can be a pretty dangerous person. You know, like the 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 real God. You know, they're not aspiring to God anymore. They've they've found god does that does that make sense oh yeah absolutely the, those people can be extremely dangerous and yeah and yet um and and i, I don't say this in, in in a debating kind of way you also speak of finding the gods within you, you actually finding them um you know and and so i think that's that's a really interesting i mean ten, if i say tension i don't mean it's inconsistent i think tension is what kind of is is a very important element of the human condition but there is a tension because you know uh you i you know i you're finding gods within and yet i i feel that if you had really found them you know what i mean and tackled them down and cataloged them that you know that would be a that would be the end of of howard bloom do you know what i mean well the gods within are a process they're not a they're not a noun, they're a verb. They're not something that just stands in place like the Kaaba in Mecca, this great big meteoric square stone. They're constantly, they're part of a process. So I have come closest to the kinds of feelings of divinity when I've been on stage performing and when I've had out-of-body experiences. And performing for an audience is like surfing. There's this giant thing that could kill you easily, yep. a wave, 
Yeah. And it, in a sense, it doesn't even exist because the um, molecules that make it up are changing from second to second to second. It has no permanent collection of molecules. The molecules of water are not doing anything more in the ocean than just circling up and circling down, and they yeah. basically stay in place. Yeah. And this, this thing, despite its capacity to shatter your bones, you can climb on its back, and if you do it right, um, you can surf it. But then when the wave hits the shore, it's all over for that wave, and you have to paddle out and get another one. And the feeling of divinity isn't a noun. It's not something that sits there in place like a rock. It's like the wave mm. in the ocean. And you're experiencing that sense of divinity is like you're surfing, climbing on the back of that wave right. and balancing yourself to yeah. partake of its energy. So yeah. divinity is a feeling inside of us. It's an emotion. Whether there's anything divine, in other words, whether there are any gods in the universe at all, those gods come alive inside of us because that's where they really are. Hmm. Um, in the midst of, in my case, an interaction with other human beings. In, hmm. in the case of people who are into meditation, it comes alive when they basically submerge themselves into a broader movement that's global. Um, and give themselves the illusion that they've let go of all sense of self right. and feel that they are one with an infinite sea of all that is in the universe. Right. One way or the other, it's a process, um, yeah. the divine. Yeah, it's, it, it, that's great. I, I think that uh, that's well said. And, and so when you're, uh, when you're experiencing the ecstatic experience, um, what came to mind when you were saying that is, is perhaps uh, that there's a little bit of, um, a uh not anti but a sort of a non-intellectual uh quality to it because if you're balancing if you're surfing a wave there's a couple crucial things you you cannot be running mathematical calculations in your head to stay on the wave and you cannot assume that you'll be on that wave for an in you know forever that that there's any that there's any way to stay on so it's like it's temporary and it's non i mean correct me if i'm wrong i'm kind of interpreting what you're saying it's temporary and it's it's somewhat non-intellectual is that fair to say yeah absolutely i mean uh, there's this thing that robin fox the guy who founded the anthropology department of rutgers university um calls participant observer science and margaret mead's a perfect example of participant observer science she didn't try to work out mathematical systems that would allow her to describe the culture of Samoa. She went to Samoa and she completely immersed herself in that culture. And she immersed herself so deeply in that culture that the Samoans voted her a chief. A chief. Women don't get to be chiefs. Foreigners hmm. don't get to be chiefs. But that's how completely she had submerged herself. Hmm. And... Um, the the ecstatic experiences, the um, uh, transcendent experiences, those are experiences that I set out, at least at the age of roughly 16 years old, to both experience fully and to bring into the realm of science mm. somehow, to take them out of a very separate planet called spirituality and bring them into the planet of science hmm. so that scientists could start to look at them and say, what are they? And hmm. even though Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me 
is a book about my rock and roll adventures with people like Michael Jackson, Prince, Billy Joel, Bob Marley, etc. It is really under the surface, a book of surfing and trying to, while you're on the back of that wave to figure out what the hell the wave is using the tools of science. That's participant observer science. And the phrase has been lost. Robin Fox did not make up the phrase. Robin is about 10 years older than I am. And the phrase was common in his days, in, in anthro his days going for his anthropology degrees. Mm. It had been lost um, by the time I came along. Mm. And uh, he brought it back to my awareness. That's all. Right. And I needed it. You know, when you're on inchoate quests, uh, quests that don't come easily to words, like you are and I am, the more phrases and words that actually capture what it is that we're experiencing or what it is that we're pursuing, we have the more tools in our toolkit. As long as we don't have words to describe an experience, it remains a chaos, mm. an indescribable chaos. Mm. But it's our job to start in that indescribable chaos, in its wilderness, in its wildness, and to pull it into the realm of symbolic representation, speech, paintings, anything. Yeah, and you do that very well. And and I, you know, I'd say that 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 uh, you are accomplishing some of the goals that you that that you've laid out there. Um, but I I definitely can see why there would be why it would be difficult. Like, I mean, if you're 16 years old and you're taking on the task of finding the ecstatic experience and then bringing it into the realm of science, I mean, you've got... Whoops, you've, hang you've on, I didn't turn off my sound. I have no idea what that was. Let's turn off the sound. There, it's off. You've set yourself, no problem. You've set yourself a difficult task and then, and then you've also, you're also within a culture that does not... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't value that in a way because you're 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 talking about a very subjective experience, like subjective in the in the most technical sense. You know, the ecstatic experience is subjective. Someone could be standing right beside you and and not experience it, and so right. you're you're basically trying to marry up the subjective and the objective, and and that's. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, my, my, my mind boggles about how that would. Well, fortunately, uh, Sigmund Freud, who originally wanted to be a neuroscientist, um, because there was neuroscience going on in his day, but because he was Jewish, he was not allowed to have a university position. And without a university position, he couldn't study neuroscience. Yeah. So instead, he went into the realm of the subject subjective and tried to grab hold of it with terms and images using yep. material primarily from Greek myth and some material from the Bible. Um, so that means there's a precedent set for trying to do science with subjective experience. Mm. Um, and without that precedent, a person like me would have a difficult time because the whole field is inchoate, unspeakable, without words. Um, and the only people giving it words are poets and people like uh, yeah. Vincent mystics. Van Gogh with his paintings and yeah, and mystics and stuff like that. But hell, if the aspiration of science is toward omniscience, then we can't afford to lock vast realms of experience 
yeah. out of science. Yeah. Yeah, there is a lot there. There seems to be. Um, I think there's maybe a misperception in the in the um, larger population uh, that maybe isn't as as present in science in the scientific community, uh, where um, there's there's this um, this virtue, um, this extreme virtue in the the microscopic, tiny individual data points. Uh, that you know, tunneling down smaller and smaller in a way into science, um, and that we're going to we're going to finally um, get get omniscience through actually having a, a kind of a, a an ultimate hard drive full of of data that's unquestionable. You know what I mean? That's that's established and 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 firmly firmly set. And what you're describing is kind of well, I'm, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know. Is what you're describing it's, it's the opposite? Here's yeah, the okay. deal. I was going to say it was the opposite, but I didn't want to. to... No, it's it's really the opposite because about uh, 350 to 400 BC, Aristotle, in two pages of his book, The Metaphysics, although he didn't write books, his students took notes on his lectures, hmm. um, but um, said he laid out the whole program of science, and he in essence said. If you reduce things to their smallest parts um, and you understand the laws of those smallest parts, you understand everything. And so science, uh, it, it, he called the laws the elements. I mean, he called the tiniest parts the elements. And so that's where we get the phrase elementary laws. Mm. Um, and so that's called a reductionist program, breaking everything down to its smallest parts and trying to right. understand the smallest parts. Yeah. And we've been doing it for the last uh, 2,300 years. Yeah. And as, and as a consequence, we've been missing the big picture. Literally, we've been missing big pictures. And it's big pictures that allow us to understand things. Plus, you can understand um, a molecule of water in the sea all you want, and the fact that it goes up and the fact that it goes down again. But unless you get into a blimp or a plane and fly over the surface of the sea and look down below you, you don't understand that the sea over distances of hundreds of miles is corrugated. That it has all of these troughs and peaks, and those are waves. And that the individual molecule is participating in the peak of a wave when it goes up, and the trough of a wave when it goes down, and the peak of the next wave when it goes up again, meaning a wave is nothing. Why? Because a wave is no thing. It passes from one group of molecules to another um, every minute. Right. So it's not a movement exactly because the things that move are the individual uh, molecules. It's and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So so here's the the deal uh, about sometime probably long before twenty eight thousand years ago, humans invented this new stuff, string. And um, so imagine I'm sending you down the street to the store that sells yarn and you buy a spool of yarn. Well, what is that spool of yarn? What are its elements? I mean, you lay it out and it's a, it, it's a long serial thread of stuff. And now, if I told you just after yarn had been invented about uh, 4,000 years ago, that you could wear that yarn to keep you warm 
in the winter, you would have told me with perfect justification, um, look, this is yarn you're talking about. So suppose I wrap it around myself as if I were a human spool in order to keep myself warm, which would take me a half an hour. Um, and then what happens when I want to take it off? I end up with this giant tangle of yarn on the floor. So I understand the elements of this. I understand a serial line string. You know, if I wanted to, I could uh, put it out and across the street and uh, attach it to my neighbor's house and I'd have the equivalent of a clothesline. That's what yarn is, that's its element. And yet at some point, somebody came along with two big pictures. The first big picture was a knitting stitch um, that allowed you to produce a fabric from nothing but this yarn and you didn't have to go to a loom and you didn't have to have fibers going this way and fibers going that way and all the stuff that looms have. The stitch alone did the trick. And then somebody came up with an even better big picture, the sweater. So is looking at the elements of yarn ever going to teach you what a sweater is? Not in a million years. Right. You have to understand both the elements and the big picture. And a guy named Jan Smuts, who eventually I think became prime minister of South Africa, called this kind of approach holistic science. And so we need to start looking at big pictures and coming to understand how you can predict what new big pictures are going to arise from a wave to a sweater. Um, or it's not science yet. Mm. Um, when when uh, physicists at CERN, you know, the giant collider in Europe, mm. um, say that they're on the cusp of a grand unified theory, they're talking about something so minor, tiny and trivial, that the idea that they're calling it a grand unified theory of everything is outrageous because it will never explain the yarn, the sweater, it won't explain an embryo, it won't explain any of the things that are normal in everyday life. Mm -hmm. It will just explain the movement of these particles so small that it takes a collider like the one yeah. at CERN yeah. to even see them at all. And it, it'll be a valuable contribution, no question about it. Yeah. But it makes a mistake when it calls itself a grand unified theory of well, everything. It would take a huge amount of faith. It, it would probably take more faith than than to believe in a God to, to believe that it's a unified, you know, that it's a unified theory of everything. Do you believe in unified theories? Well, I, uh, I have this little thing in my computer. It's a table of contents to the stuff that's in my computer. It's about 500 pages long, a table of contents, and it's 500 pages long. It has uh, roughly 10,000 entries um, at this point. And up on the top, and I have no idea when I wrote this down, it was probably around 2000, um, it has a title, The Grand Unified Theory of Everything in the Universe, Including the Human Soul. And then uh, a TV producer said, no, 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 your theory is not a grand unified theory of everything in the universe, including the human soul. Your theory is a grand unified theory of everything in the universe, including sex violence and the human soul. <laughs> okay, so that made sense. So obviously, and, and the film, the 66 minute film on me that's won two festival awards in a time when festivals have been impossible. Um, that film is called The Grand Unified Theory of Howard Bloom. Right, yeah. But I, so I, I don't, 
look, I believe that the quest, one, the quest for a grand unified theory that unifies gravity with uh, electromagnetism, with the strong force, the weak force, and the nuclear force, yes, I believe that's a valuable contribution. But it's not quite science yet in the strange way that it doesn't allow us to comprehend the very biggest things around us in the cosmos. Mm. Emergent properties, they're called. Right. A galaxy is an emergent property. Mm. A star is an emergent property. A planet is an emergent property. Life is the most shocking emergent property this universe has ever, ever seen. And yet life is a vital part of this cosmos. And if we're going to understand the cosmos and we don't understand life, and we don't understand what happens when Martin Luther King is standing on a balcony um, in Alabama and a bullet hits him and he's 100 trillion cells and only, God knows, a tiny percentage of those cells are damaged. But Martin Luther King disappears. There is no more Martin Luther King, despite the fact that there are roughly 100 trillion still functional cells laying there on the balcony floor. We don't understand that transition from death, well, from, from life to death. Um, it, we don't understand consciousness. We don't understand ecstatic experiences. We don't understand transcendental, ex transcendental experiences. As long as we don't understand those things, science is in its most primitive of all possible stages. It's still in its stone tool age. And understanding those big pictures like the sweater and life um, is an essential past in science. So in my book, The God Problem, How a Godless Cosmos Creates, um, Barbara, um, oh God, what is her name? There is a woman who is very, very high in the liberal left, um, politically correct community, Barbara Ehrenreich. Okay. And she read that book. Now, Barbara started in science. And so science is of great interest to her. And she said in the, she wrote the introduction for this book of all things. And she said that up until now to understand how a bird flies, first we killed the bird. Then we dissected it and looked at its individual cells. Then we've tried to understand what those individual cells can contribute to flight. Well, the mere fact that we killed the bird means that we killed the very most interesting and challenging thing we should be studying. Right. So we have to go from reduction of science, the science of the last 250 years, to uh, an emergent, a science of emergent properties, mm. the, the holes that emerge from the sum of their parts. Yeah. And until we do that, I mean, she said this book is the beginning of the next 250 years of science. I'm paraphrasing her, wow. but that's in essence what she said. Yeah, it, it's, uh, that's uh, that's all really great. And as usual, that uh, it's it's like a fire hose of of off ramps. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> what one thing that came to my mind talking about, and I, I feel like I've I've read or heard you say the bird thing uh, before about killing the bird. Um, uh, but the do you know the William Blake poem? He who binds to himself a joy. Death no, no, life. tell me. Okay, so yeah, it's it's one that's uh, it's been kind of important to me. It, it's he who binds to himself a joy, doth the winged life destroy. Uh, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Which came to my mind anyway, because uh, 
because what you're describing is is kind of is kind of uh, experiencing the world and experiencing science as um, an experiential thing or as a as a kind of a, you know an embodied phenomena or something. I don't I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm petering out an there. emergent property. An emergent property. Yeah, uh, and the the way that I mean I I I resonate very strongly with this um, idea of of looking at the larger phenomena um, and and learning from that. I mean, we definitely, though, leave ourselves open to uh, um, a million in interpretations and then uh, and then people uh, wanting to to stop the million interpretations and 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 be tyrannical and say, you know, no, it's got to be this, you know, and then you get camps and all of that. I think it, it, science, there's a comfort in science being very small, tunneling down, you know, one thing presents itself at a time kind of thing. And, and, and so, I don't know, it's hard for me to imagine a future. I want that it to be, but it's hard to imagine a future where we can look at these uh, larger phenomena and that that search can lead to some kind of greater understanding of humanity rather than greater splintering of uh of humanity in into factions does that make it makes sense? sense but one of the first of all any enterprise including science is a battle between subcultures and a battle battle often between civilizations themselves hmm. and the dominant theme in science of any given moment is created by the victory of one subculture over its rivals and the attempt to make those rivals look like non-science mm. um be contemptible uh so right. that if you if you believe in one of the outliers in one of the outlying subcultures ideas you can be thrown off your tenure track you can be not denied the ability to publish in the major journals your career can be destroyed Right. by a dominant subculture putting across its point of view. Right. So in the 1950s in psychology, there was a dominant subculture. It uh, was gathered together or was gathered around B.F. Skinner at Harvard. B.F. Skinner at Harvard said basically, well, all you can observe in trying to do psychology is human behavior. You can't see what's inside the mind. You can only get evidence of what's inside the mind from human behavior. And so since all you can see is behavior, there is no such thing as a human psyche. And that field was dominant in psychology of all things, banishing the very psyche from psychology Man. for 30 or 40 years. Yeah. Because the, the subculture that organized itself and was organized by B.F. Skinner um, managed to stop on every other point of view as mm. unscientific yeah um and now things have righted themselves again and it's possible to talk about consciousness it's been possible to talk about right. consciousness in a yeah. scientific context for 25 years or so yeah. um but that's because there are new subcultures right that are dominant yeah it it sounds religious really honestly the you know the bf skinner thing it sounds very much like the God found, right? Like the, uh, you know, like putting an end to debate in order to have primacy. Well, what it's reminiscent of is St. Augustine. 
So St. Augustine was this very bright guy who was experimenting with various forms of paganism, including Manichaeanism, which believes that there's a force of dark working against a force of light, a force of evil looking, working against a force of good, and tends to see everything in terms of the battle of good and evil. Hmm. Um, and then he went to uh, the home of a bishop near Rome, and it was a castle. A castle. It was, I mean, it was a palace. It was so gorgeous, it absolutely stunned him. And that's what he wanted. So he became a Christian. Well, hmm. guess what happened once he became a Christian? He started spotting heresies all over the place, points of view he disagreed with. And he went out to destroy the heresies and the heretics, when he had been one of the greatest heretics of them all just a year earlier or two hmm. years earlier. And in science, that kind of battle between subcultural groups, because in order to accomplish his ends, St. Augustine had to mobilize a subculture within Christianity. Hmm. Um, that's uh, what our intellectual pastimes like science are really about under the surface, unfortunately. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, and it speaks back to the beginning of the conversation where there's such value in, in uh, you know, in, in keeping all of these various viewpoints, uh, in your life and keeping all of them around. Like my, uh, my conviction is that all, you know, all wisdom is, is God's, uh, all, all knowledge is God's, you know, and, and all love is God's. And so, uh, if, if, uh, you know, if, if I'm fine, if manichaeism, manichaeism, oh, sorry. Manichaeanism. Manichaeanism. Uh, you know, if, if there's anything there that, that, uh, you know, for me, then it's, then it's God's, you know what I mean? Like there, right. there's no, there's no heresy, there's no heresy. There's just bad faith. Uh, right. And well, there, there's a line between truth and, and evil. And the line comes when humans set out to kill other human beings. And that's unacceptable. And, um, and fortunately, since 1650, um, the rate of peace has gone up by a factor of 10. That is, if you've been born either in 1650 or in one of those wonderful uh, indigenous tribes that lives at peace with its fellow men and in harmony with nature, your odds of dying a violent death at the hands of another human being would have been 10 times mm. what they are today. So we are moving toward peace. And, and if somebody wants to make war on our people, whatever our people is, uh, we're, we're forced to use violence. Mm. Um, but, but that's increasingly rare. And yeah. the point is that the more we can comp keep this competition peaceful, the way that the uh, competition between hockey teams in different cities is peaceful, um, the better off we are. Mm. But all of our knowledge comes from this battle between social groups and let's for god's sakes keep it peaceful because war is a horrible thing yeah and, and none of us if if you see a mass murder coming and you don't try to stop it you're an accomplice to the deed that's where the line is between good and evil hmm. um killing or destroying the lives of your fellow human beings right well what do, what do we do with the uh, like there's a dynamic that you've described uh, there with St. Augustine and with um, uh, the Harvard, um, oh man, B.F. Skinner, B.F. Skinner, that, uh, and, and it's also been true of, of various people like uh, Darwin, it happened to Darwin, it happened to Freud, 
where um and I don't know enough about BF Skinner to say if this is true of him, but where, you know, really there was an honest investigation going on there with the knowledge they had at the time in the context that they had at the time. And there's such a hunger in the audience for the primacy and prominence of those ideas and for a final answer and for a stoppage, you know, and, and for use, for using those ideas to gain, like you say, the, um, Augustine's um, big castle, um, you know, that um, they, we, they create these, you know, these, these men into gods, men and women into gods, uh, sometimes even a, against their will. Um, and, and then Darwin becomes the, the man who killed God by saying that uh, evolution by natural selection occurred or whatever. Um, so what is the best? Cause that's, I mean, that is religion in a sense, like that, that's one way you could define religion. And, but, but as you've already said, it happens in actual, you know, accepted religion and it happens in the scientific community and scientific consensus. What's the, what's the help? How do we help that? That's something I want to do. I want to be a part of. That's a very good question. Um, because, it, it, Aaron, that's such a, a powerful question, and it's hard to come up with an answer. I mean, when Charles Darwin had come up with an idea that he knew would run into opposition because of the nature of science as a clash between subcultures, he started organizing his own subculture. Um, he, was, he was sick. He was confined to his home. He couldn't go into London to defend his ideas or to promote his ideas. But he made a list of all of the people who would need to be won over. And one of the people that he did win over was uh, Huxley, Thomas Henry Huxley. And Huxley went into London and helped implement Darwin's plans, contacting people one by one by one to winning them over to Darwin's idea. So that by the time Darwin's idea was, and I've got some details wrong here, but by the time Darwin was ready to present his ideas to the Royal Society through Huxley, um, they already had organized a whole bunch of others who would fall into line and support this idea. Mm. Um, Sigmund Freud looked for acolytes. He looked for people who could be converted to his ideas. He had a Thursday night group. It met every single week. It consisted of his acolytes, and um, Sigmund Freud went down to Rome and sat at the feet of Michelangelo's Moses, trying to think of how Moses had organized a subculture, a movement from nothing. Mm. And, uh, for example, Moses was an arch marketer. Not only did he go up uh, to the top of a mountain and come down with 10 simple commandments, um, he came up with a simple slogan uh, in, in the, the English translation that's standard is hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which actually means listen up, Israel. I am your God and your only God. I am your Lord. That is, I am the dominant figure to whom who, who you must obey. Um, and that's it. I'm it. Um, so Moses had this slogan. Uh, he had people write the slogan down and put it on their doorposts 
So they would see it when they walked out of their houses in the morning and then when they walked back in at night. He had them bind it to their arms. Um, he had them do all kinds of things to get this slogan across. Right. And then he isolated his potential people in the desert for 40 years so that he wouldn't take them into their promised land until he had a generation who had grown up with nothing but his new point of view. Oh, wow. So Freud looked at this, and the reason that he sat at the foot of Michelangelo's Moses in Rome for so long, I think it was three days, was to try to think out how Moses had pulled off organizing a subcultural movement so that he could organize a subcultural movement that would last beyond his time. Hmm. Um, and his Thursday night group was a key to it. And then he picked a, uh, um, one of his acolytes, one of the people who believed in him deeply, who he thought could get it because he was Jewish. He felt his ideas were up against limits or anti-Semitism. So he picked a blonde, blue-eyed God um, to take this idea to the Gentiles. And that was Carl Jung. And little did Freud know it, even though he had written about how we um, first were raised by our fathers, then we devour our fathers. Yeah. Carl Jung would devour him right. and come up with uh, his own heresy. But so he very often, well, very often the intellectual movements that dictate the tools of our scientific vocabulary and our vocabulary in general were movements that were deliberately created and that went viral, that had luck that fell into the pool of human experience so that a whole bunch of humans would say, oh my God, that's how I felt all along. And this guy finally put that into words. That's what you look for because that's, there, there's uh, a story in Einstein, Michael Jackson and me. And it basically goes like this. So um, you go out to the kitchen, I'm sitting in your living room. You take as much salt as you possibly can huge amount and you dissolve it in a glass of water and you stir it what does it look like now nothing but water right yeah you take it out to me and you say what's in this glass and i say water it's obviously water and then you tell me okay pick up a crystal of salt and drop it into the water and i do and all of a sudden all the salt molecules this three inches of salt molecules that you poured into that glass of water discover they have a common identity. Right. And they all go rushing toward that little tiny crystal of salt. And by the time they're finished, all the salt in that glass is a great, big, raggedy, jaggedy, geometric um, crystal of salt. Right. So you have to have two things. One is you have to aggressively develop the core of a subculture. That's your grain of salt mm. around your ideas. And you have to have the luck that you've fallen into a supersaturated solution where everybody is ready to go, oh my God, that's how I felt all along. Thank God this guy expressed it. Mm. Yeah. Wow. It's it, uh, there's a lot there. And I've never heard the um I've never heard the Exodus uh, in the 40 years in the desert described as an intentional uh marketing move. Uh, like, uh, I, I never considered that, uh, 
that that would uh, could have been an intentional move and not uh, just a, a, a wandering, you know, like a that w an unplanned wandering in the desert looking for the promised land. But it it kind of makes sense. Maps well, that's existed. Freud's that's Freud's way of looking at it. He wrote it down in a book called Moses and Monotheism, and it's an amazing story. And Lord knows whether it's real, <laughs> whether it's true. But one way or whether it is true or not, with regard to Moses and the Jewish people, it is certainly true with regard to Sigmund Freud and his sense of how you had to go about building a movement that right. would be around after you disappeared. Yeah, it's it's very interesting, you know, because on, on the one hand, you have, uh, you, you know, people, people who are really committed to not only truth, but the search for truth. I know you say the truth at any price, including the price of your life. And so you have your Howard Blooms on one hand, who I assume you would be quite happy to create a subculture and a you know an institution that will carry on your ideas and keep moving. Like you know, like you've created a yarn, some yarn, and you'd like you'd like people to take that and and figure out various ways to maybe make clothing or or any number of things with it. So that's kind of an open-handed, right? Uh, subcultural creation. And then on the other hand, you you've got your your Hitlers, you know, or, or something like that, who are very, very successful at, uh, you know, or, you know, or, or even Augustine that, that you mentioned, you know, like, uh, very successful in their legacy, well, at least their name lives, lives on forever for the ways that they, they have created a culture or, or co-opted cultures. So I guess it's, it's very, it, it's just such a complicated topic because what i'd what i'd like to see is you know um i have my delusions of grandeur occasionally if i'm you know <laughs> if i let my mind wander and think maybe i'll be the salt you know maybe i'll be the salt crystal that makes all those salt crystals coalesce oh, and then right. and then there's this desire though to have all of those uh go out from there you know uh and all of those salt crystals intentionally break off again and go right. dish, you know, right. and, and, and propagate onward. There's sort of a spirit of, I mean, I, I almost consider it, no, no, not almost. I do consider it somewhat Christ-like where, right. where, you know, someone would, would seek truth and, and then, and, and in a way give up their power at some point, you know what I mean? Right. Give up their preeminence at some point for the sake of, of this truth exploding out in into the world and not becoming a, a BF Skinnerian, Skinnerian, uh, you know, right. tunnel vision religion. Well, uh, you have to do what the, oh, no. the sort I've of thing that's implied sound. by. Oh, wait, you I lost no my sound? sound? Oh, no sound. Okay, hang on. No, oh. it's not on mute. Okay, try it now. Oh, 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 hang on. Wait a moment. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. I think maybe I think maybe these uh, shitty earbuds are crapping out. My bad. Keep keep going. <laughs> well, uh, we were just talking about the Skinners of the world. So um, somebody came along, a guy who won three uh, Emmys and a filmmaker, and associated with something called Brick TV in Brooklyn, where I live, and made a 66 minute film about me. And in that film, I talk about uh, wanting to establish a Howard Bloom Institute and some steps I was taking at that point to create one. 
And um, then a bunch of people saw the film and emailed me and said, I would like to be part of your Howard Bloom Institute. Well, there was no institute yet. So I put them all together online and because uh, they're spread from London to LA. And um, now there is a Howard Bloom Institute. And why, why a Howard Bloom Institute? I have had two marriages and I've never had any children. I've raised other people's children. Hmm. Why? Because my children are my books. My children are my ideas. My children are my insights. And when I was 10 years old and utterly lost in Buffalo, New York, all alone, no other kids wanted to have anything to do with me and my parents didn't seem to be the least bit interested and they were busy. Um, a book opened in my lap and it said, the first two rules of science are these, the truth at any price, including the price of your life and look at things run under your nose as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. And all of a sudden, I had a religion, but also each one of these principles was associated by the author with somebody. The first was Galileo, and the second was Anton von Leeuwenhoek, the guy who invented the microscope. Mm. So all of a sudden, I had a, a gang of kids who could not throw me out of their group. Um, Galileo and Anton von Leeuwenhoek, mm -hmm. they couldn't throw me out of the group for a very simple reason. They were dead. Mm -hmm. So two guys reached out over a distance of 350 years to save my life. And so my obligation at that moment became to reach out over the next 350 years and save the next poor, confused kid down the line. Mm. And that is a difficult process. So my children are my seven books, and I'm working on my eight and my ideas. And, and from the very beginning, since the age of 10, the goal has been to reach out over 350 years and Aaron, this is an impossible task. The odds against it happening with any individual on this planet at the moment are over a billion to one against. Um, and yet that's the only task that this particular life has given me. And this particular life happens to be my only life. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't get a lot of <laughs> options here. Yeah. Um, so that's what Freud was doing. That's what B.F. Skinner was doing. That's what Charles Darwin was doing. They were institution building. They were subculture building. Mm. Or their ideas would not have gotten across to you and me. Yeah. The one guy who wasn't subculture building because he was such an impossible asshole was Vincent van Gogh. He was monstrous to other people. Absolutely monstrous. And when he died even though his brother was one of the best positioned art dealers in Europe, he'd only sold two paintings. And then his, and then his brother died six months later, six months after he did. And his brother had a young new wife. And that young new wife looked at the work of Vincent van Gogh, looked at the pile of letters that, that her husband and Vincent, his brother had shared and saw a body of work in it and worked to promote that work for the rest of her life. So Vincent van Gogh, though he tried to make connections, he always failed because he always got into fights with people. Um, and he had no idea when he died that, that any of this would ever happen. But mm. somebody's got to be there organizing things or an idea doesn't take off. Right. Yeah, uh, that's that's great and, I, and i'm glad that the institute is is taking shape around your ideas and get, you know keeping your children 
alive. I I do love those two, and I've heard them before. You say them before those those two. The truth at any price, including the price of your life. And look at the, look at what's right under your nose, as though you've never seen it before, because it won't let you stop. And you know, I I know that even that you you've experienced uh, or or suffered from uh, kind of chronic fatigue syndrome or something similar to that. Yeah, and, I was chronic fatigue syndrome. I was and, in bed for fifteen years, and for five years, it was too weak to talk and too weak to have another person in the room with me. And the fascinating thing about that is that with these two ideas in your head, there's a certain energy there, a life-giving energy that kept you moving and even working somewhat through what what would appear to be the lowest level of energy someone could could possibly have. And it's two ideas that don't let you stop because as soon as you've looked at something under your nose as though you've never seen it before, well, once you once you kind of feel like you've seen it before, and you can't you can no longer keep looking at that thing as though you've never seen it before you have to find something <laughs> you have to find something else you have to find the truth that you know you have to keep moving and, right and, yeah um and and so i think that's really inspirational well you're absolutely right and during those 15 years they were monsters they were horrible they were unendurable but i wrote three books and i founded two international scientific groups because of the miracle of the internet hmm. because i've been on the internet since 1983 um, and because I was tremendously envious of uh, scientists and academic institutions who were able to get on the internet in the 1970s, earlier than I did. Mm. So the internet saved my life. The kind of thing that everybody's just been doing for the last year because of COVID, and that is doing everything on the internet. I had to do in, the, in a time when the internet was primitive, dark, there were no pictures, there was no World Wide Web, there were no web pages. Um, it was darkness, and but that darkness became my light. Um, it became the, the land in which I was forced to live. So I've been through what everybody's just been through for the last year, and I went through it for 15 years way back then. Wow, that's that's totally fascinating. Um, do you? I, I, I'll I'll wrap up pretty soon. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but uh, one of the things that kind of um, came to my mind as we were talking about these these two kind of slogans that saved your life do you feel that ideas are alive like is that something or is that a thing yeah i mean it's not only a thing uh richard dawkins with whom i disagree about a bunch of things richard dawkins is a zoologist at uh, oxford i think who's become famous as the most brilliant man on the face of the earth in the opinion of some and he wrote a book called the selfish gene yeah and he proposed the idea of a meme a uh, meme is like yeah. a gene in, in that it's self-assembling and it's self-replicating. But a meme is one of those catchy tunes that you hate. But when you're not doing anything else, all of a sudden that tune runs nonstop through your brain. That's a meme. Yeah. Something, an idea that takes off virally yeah. is a meme. Um, a, an ideology is a meme. Christianity is a meme. Judaism is a meme. Science is a meme with of course yeah. a whole bunch of memes packaged within it yeah and our memes uh, do memes exist well remember the the molecule of water that was simply circling and never going anywhere nothing goes anywhere and yet there was a wave rippling across the ocean with a distinct identity even though its particles its corpuscles were never the same 
yes. from one minute to the next. And a meme is like that. It goes flickering from one human brain to another human brain to another human brain and yes. assumes an identity of its own. Look at Christianity. Which has lived the longest? Aaron Parker or Christianity? <laughs> yeah, obviously Christianity. Yeah, so Christianity has been around for uh, 2,000 years now. Yeah. That is, and it's made many predictions, and every one of those predictions has proven to be false. <laughs> um, Jesus predicted that if he went up at exactly, on exactly the right year to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover dinner, where traditionally a cup is left for Elijah, who will usher in um, the coming of the Messiah, that if he went up for this dinner, that the kingdom of God would descend. Instead, he was crucified. Bad prediction. Didn't work out. <laughs> Not at all. And then his apostles held together, and they predicted that Jesus was going to come back with the kingdom of God next week. Yeah. And next week came, and it didn't happen. Then next year. Next year came, and it didn't happen. This prediction has been made for 2,000 years now, has never come true, and yet has people dropped Christianity because it turned out to be a belief system that just didn't hold up in the real world? Yeah. Not at all. It's the leading religion in the world today. Yeah. That's a meme. Right. That's a wave going across the sea, changing its constituents yeah. constantly and yet remaining intact. Yeah. Well, and, and something about, I mean, I, I hear you. It's something about the, the meme and especially memes that involve narrative uh, like that, where uh, I, I always feel like there, there, there's something encoded, you know, that there's something encoded that, uh, you know, that we're still seeking, even though we don't know we're seeking it in a meme right. or something like that. Because, because to me, uh, you know, I, I laugh as well at the at you know the prophets and the you know the um, dispensational premillennialist uh, you know and and those who would uh, be um, you know uh, wanting the state of Israel to to come into fruition because it'll fulfill a prophecy and maybe after that happens you know we'll we'll hear, hear trumpets in the sky and that kind right. of thing it's it's difficult but at the same time uh, at the same time I do feel like the kingdom of heaven. Uh, was ushered in in the very story of uh of someone uh giving up their preeminence for the sake of the truth right uh, and that there's something that happens there i mean i mean this is just me this is you know obviously uh i i'm not i'm not arguing with you but uh you know when 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 jesus modeled uh th the fact you know th that someone could be uh in involved in the creation of this subculture that that became a meme but then also gave you know gave gave out said you know gave, gave away their own preeminence for the sake of okay now you know we've made this you know what we've done right now is we've made this yarn and we need people to take this yarn and figure out ways to make people warm with it um, and and the only way for that to happen is for me to get out of the way and 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 stop squabbling over exactly what I said and trying to eat exactly what I ate and trying to do trying to get into an automata version of me. I'm gonna get out of the way, get out of the way of this truth as it now moves into the future and we have a hard time with that we have a hard time not not creating it into a, a 
you know, a, a religion or, or something where, where we're now tunneling down and down and down and getting more and more specific so that we all look the same. Does that make sense? Am I on a tear? Well, uh, you got me thinking about something. Blood is a powerful bonding mechanism. Um, by blood, I mean the shedding of blood and rhetoric that revolves around the shedding of blood. If you look carefully at uh, Adolf Hitler's most resonant phrases, they're all about the shedding of blood. Mm. And the idea that Paul came up with, Paul who never met Jesus, um, Paul who was persecuting Christians, hated them. Um, Paul came up with a whole new idea for Christianity, which is that uh, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus' blood, what do you see when you see Jesus' pictures of Jesus um, carrying a cross and wearing a crown of thorns? Blood trickling down his forehead. What do you see when you see Jesus on the cross with nails in both wrists and nails through his ankles? Blood. And blood is a profound bonding mechanism. Mm. And death is a profound bonding mechanism. It's very strong in Islam, for example, where the idea of the shaheed, the martyr, um, who sheds his blood is extremely important. Yeah. One of the bonding mechanisms that holds Islam together. So right. blood holds together the two major religions of the world, trickling, shedding, blood, um, Islam and Christianity. And the idea is that Jesus didn't just give up his preeminence, he suffered. He suffered and on the cross he said, Eloi, Eloi sabachthani, which means my Lord, my Lord, why hast thou abandoned me? In other words, he didn't just suffer from the nails and the crown of thorns. Um, mm. He suffered because his entire belief system was being shattered right. right then. Because the God he thought would come to greet him in Jerusalem with the kingdom of God did mm. the very opposite and caused him to suffer. And Paul's idea was he died on the cross as a sacrifice um, for all of humanity, for all of those who believe in him. Um, your sins shall be redeemed and you shall see the kingdom of God through your belief in the suffering of Christ. So it's a very complex yeah. image and suffering, death and blood yeah. are in there and yeah. sacrifice are yeah. in there. And they're very powerful. Um, they, they're in, they appeal to our instincts, things built into us by our biology. Yeah, kind of a limbic uh, shock. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah, something. Yeah, uh, what's the word? Carnal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we should, and, and then of course there's the Eucharist, which is this is my body and this is my blood, um, which just uh, brings back all of that imagery to mind all over again. And you're literally you're supposed to be drinking the blood of Christ. Yeah. Just uh, astonishing. Yeah. So. Um, okay, we better send me off to work. Okay, yep. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you for this discussion. It, it's uh, it's definitely uh, been everything I hoped it would be. Well, it's been a pleasure. So hopefully I will send me the URL when you get it so I can post it. And yep. hopefully I'll see you again soon. Will do. Thank you, sir. Have a good day okay. of work. Thanks, Aaron. Right. Bye. Bye.